may have discovered this by now, but my mind often does bizarre things and makes strange connections. And I want to share one of the unusual things that I often think about. In fact, I can tell you the last time I had this thought, it was Monday at about 12, 16 p.m. And I was out on supervision. Uh, it had snowed that weekend, as you probably remember. And so walked into this blanket of fresh, white, deep snow that the children hadn't been there yet. So it was totally pure and white and crisp and beautiful. And so as I stepped out of the door, I got to blaze a trail through that snow. I got to make a path. And whenever that happens, actually not even in the snow, this I think this thought way more than I, I, I should and probably shouldn't be admitting this, but in that situation, definitely, I was thinking, am I the first person to ever step in this exact patch of ground? Like, I know there's children running around everywhere and they have for decades on that playground, but that doesn't mean that a foot has stepped exactly right here. I wonder if I'm the first person to step in this exact pad right down to the square inch and if not the follow-up question is has has there ever been a place on earth that i'm the only one to ever step like the only human like going back even to like first nations people for centuries am i the first person to i don't maybe there's some vanity there probably but if i'm not the first then how many and so i start to estimate how many in this little patch in the corner of the playground of the thousands of children and thousands of recesses, how many would have stepped here? And I think 356 probably. That's probably... (laughs) I don't know if you've ever wondered a similar thing. I think of it at Jasper Camp. Jasper is the wilderness, so you would think there would be more opportunities to... But the places where you step in Jasper are all the places they tell you to step, and there's thousands of tourists, so probably not there either. Um, I used to think of this... When I was a little kid, I, I would think of this all the time, at my cousin's creek bed... Um, they have, they had this awesome through the field and then there's this big, great tobogganing hill. And I'm sure there's places there that no human has ever physically stepped foot on except me. Um, I think of this, I, when I wander around grandma's farm or certain vacant lots in Clyde, it's just something that <laughs> I don't, I don't know what this says about me, but I wonder, am I the first ever person to step in this spot? If not, how many could have? I think certainly I must be some kind of pioneer, some kind of trailblazer, some kind of explorer, right? Well, sorry to burst my own bubble, but almost certainly not. There's hundreds of kids on that playground over the decades. But but still, there's a certain appeal to being a groundbreaker, to go on an adventure. Um, I definitely love that sensation of exploration. That's why almost every summer... I choose to drive all the way across the country to Angie's family place. The flight is four hours, and I choose to take three days because I love that sense of expedition, that there's, it's something to be mapped out and then conquered, and I, I can conquer it. It's the Trans-Canada Highway, so it's not exactly breaking new ground. Um, certainly that ground has been broken, but to me, it's breaking new ground, and I love that that thing. Even yesterday... Though it was for a sad purpose, the idea of going to Boyan, Alberta, never even heard of Boyan, Alberta. Has anybody heard of Boyan, Alberta other than Sharon? Okay, yeah, your hands don't count. Um, the Romanian capital of Alberta is what I found out. Uh, um, the, the prospect of going to this little place that I'd never heard of was exciting to me. It, it had appeal. I, I like the idea of stepping where I've never stepped before and where maybe no one has stepped before. I think that maybe has appeal for many people. I don't know if that has any appeal to you at all, but 
It can be fearful. It can be treacherous. But pioneers are honored for a reason. Pioneering is, is an exciting thing. Which brings us to our passage this morning. Nearly every chapter in Acts features something groundbreaking, right? I'm always going on about this shaped history forever and humankind was never the same after this. And They're probably like, yeah, we get it. It's a big deal. But ground continues to get broken, not necessarily geographically, because so far in Acts, we've been to places that are familiar to the New Testament, places like Jerusalem, Judea, Joppa, Antioch. These are places where Jesus himself had been to many of these places, and he himself had broken ground with the gospel, with his words. Um, So the, the locations aren't new and exciting. In Acts, what's groundbreaking is the audience or the mission or the theology. All of that is totally groundbreaking. But today is different. Today, there is geographical groundbreaking. Today, Acts 13, which began with Paul and Barnabas and Mark going to Cyprus. That's not really groundbreaking, but they do some new work, some new evangelizing with some new people um, because that was Barnabas's hometown. Um, but the bulk of the chapter... The rest of chapter 13 is spent in a place where the name of Jesus had not gained either fame or notoriety. It's a new place. Paul and Barnabas are breaking new ground, stepping forth in uncharted territory for the church. Their pioneering expedition is the first of many actions that will dominate our lesson today. That's why I called it actions, and it's part one. And since we all know Newton's third law of motion, you don't need to know Newton's third law of motion. I had to look it up myself, but Newton's third law of motion will help us predict what next, what part two will be because every action requires an equal and opposite reaction. So next, this week is actions. Next week is reactions. We're going to look at some actions, some, some things that happen, um, some action words. So let's grab our scriptural compass, our map, if you will, and blaze a trail together through Acts 13, um, beginning at verse 13. And I'll stop frequently on our journey before we reach our destination, which is verse 41. So let's read, actually, just the first couple verses, 13 and 14. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. That's a lot of P names. Paphos, Paul, Perga, Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. There's another P word. And we'll pause there. We're actually actually going to pause there, because I think it's time to look at the big map omissions to help us make sense of the geography of these pioneer travels. The first ever mission strip in which Gentiles are targeted, that's what this represents, chapters 13 and 14. Um, The first ever mission strip to the Gentiles is enough of a groundbreaking expedition. Just the idea of what they're doing is groundbreaking. But Cyprus wasn't exactly foreign to the followers of Jesus, as Barnabas is testament to. He is a follower of Jesus. He's from Cyprus. However, once they set sail towards Pamphylia, and then set their anchors down in the city of Perga, they are in uncharted territory for the church. Brand new place. There there are two small things in in verse 13 that I want to highlight. One is very obvious. Luke is very blunt about it. The other is far more subtle. But both have to do with the personnel who are undertaking this great expedition to the Gentiles, into Gentile territory. So first, the obvious one, the one that's very obvious about the personnel. Luke indicates very clearly that it's in Perga, where John Mark leaves the company, takes off. And it, it just it's left as just Barnabas and Paul. I'm going to talk more about this in a few weeks when we get to chapter 15 because this infuriates Paul. This, this drives him crazy. Um, because Mark, in fact, the words of Acts 15 are that Mark just abandons them, just up and leaves them. 
we, we never really learn Mark's reasoning for why. Maybe he's homesick, maybe he's seasick, maybe he's lovesick, or maybe he's just regular, you know, puke out your guts sick. We don't know why. Maybe his fears for the journey got the best of him, and as I'll say in a in a few minutes, there are legitimate fears for this journey, and maybe he caved to those fears. Maybe he had a crisis of faith. We don't know. We're not sure. But what m- may be the most likely about this obvious thing about the personnel, about Mark leaving, it may have to do with the less obvious thing, the, the thing that, that Luke doesn't come out and say, but it's very much there. Who does Luke mention sailed to Perga and Pamphylia exactly? I'm not sh- sure what the NLT says if you read NLT, but what does the NIV say? Who sails to Perga? Paul and his companions. Thanks, Bill. Paul and his companions. That's a funny change because up until 1313, it has been Barnabas and Paul. And Barnabas first. Very explicitly, Barnabas first. It was always Barnabas and Saul in that order because Barnabas was the authority figure, believe it or not. That's crazy for us to think of because Paul's this titanic figure. But in the early goings of these mission trips, it's Barnabas who's the head. It's Barnabas who was working in Antioch and brought Paul to Antioch. It's Barnabas who was sent from Jerusalem by the apostles to check out what was going on in Antioch. This whole thing is the brainchild of Barnabas. He had seniority in every way. He, he came to the gospel first. He was probably actually older than Saul, Paul. So he had seniority in every way. But from, from this point on, he will be forever known as simply a companion of Paul. Paul, the greatest missionary to the Gentiles, ever, he's the one who dominates the spotlight from here on out. And Barnabas fades to the background. He becomes just a companion. And maybe because John Mark was Barnabas's cousin, maybe Mark sees this happening and resents it and resents this hotshot Paul for stepping on his cousin's toes. And maybe Mark has enough and says, I'm out of here. I don't want any part of this. Again, we don't know. But, but Paul was furious about it. What we are sure of is that from Acts 13 onward, it's Paul who takes center stage. Not just like in Acts, but like for the rest of the New Testament, pretty much. It's kind of the Paul show. The thing about it, though, and I think this is important to say, is that Barnabas' personality, we never get a sense that this bothered Barnabas, that he resented being put to the background. Barnabas was an encourager, and encouragers always are happy to see someone else get the spotlight, someone else get the glory. Ultimately, to see God get the glory. Barnabas doesn't care if he's, he doesn't care if it's Barnabas and Paul or Paul and Barnabas or Paul and his buddies. Barnabas doesn't care as long as God is glorified. And I think there's an important lesson to that. Really, considering what Jesus says about first and last in the kingdom, it's probably Barnabas who's the better example in this passage to us than Paul. Not everyone can be a trailblazer like Paul. We're not all called to that, but we can all be supporters and encouragers of those who are blazing trail for the kingdom. And, and, when we become the least, we are recognized in glory for it. But with Paul at the helm, the company sets out from Perga for Pisidian Antioch. Here it is. It just says Antioch here. The reason it's called Pisidian Antioch is because there's many different Antiochs. In fact, if you look at this map, here's an Antioch. Uh, here's an Antioch. Somewhere over here, there's an Antioch, I think. Uh, anyway, there's tons of Antiochs. Talking about Antioch in, in this world was kind of like if you're trying to book a flight to Sydney because you want a lovely vacation in Australia and you end up in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is nice, but 
It's not the same. It's not what you were expecting. There's lots of Antioch, so don't get it mixed up. This Antioch was in the Roman province of Galatia. In fact, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians just a few months after the events that we will read today. And the intended audience of the letter to the Galatians is probably these people who he interacts with here in chapter 13. I just think it's cool when the internet, internet, when the New Testament, I don't know, I'm sure I said the internet, when, oh, because when the New Testament webs its way around like that, so that's why, that's, that was a weird thing. Um, but the letter to the Galatians, this is the part in history where Galatians is, is written and to these people we're going to hear about. Although Luke doesn't go out of his way to highlight this. I mentioned the, the difficulty of the journey. But verse 14 It's there. It captures Paul's pioneer spirit. Paul, at this point, is at the age where most men just want to settle down. Or they're ramping up a midlife crisis. Maybe that's what Paul's going through. But Paul's about in his mid-40s. And instead of of taking it easy, he's really ramping up his efforts. He, He steps off a boat, and he's faced with this enormous physical challenge, this journey ahead of him. Pisidian Antioch, Uh, was about 100 miles from Perga that he had to travel by foot. Paul would have been familiar with mountains. He grew up in Tarsus where the Taurus mountain range was there. But these mountains here in in what's it called, Pamphylia, these mountains are much more severe than the mountains he was used to. Barnabas would have never seen mountains like this, especially not in his home island of Cyprus. And John Mark, the the rocky hills in Judea are nothing compared to what faces them. So maybe that's why he takes off. Again, we're not sure. But the mountain passes of this particular road would leave Paul and Barnabas vulnerable to bandits and barbarians. Rome, the safest time in in 100 years on either side of this event, the safest time for Paul to be traveling on this highway was right here, was, was at this time. 100 years before, tons of barbarians, tons of bandits. 100 years after, the Romans are really starting to crush these people. So, this was the best time to travel, but they were still vulnerable. It was still a treacherous journey. They, they would have had to join a caravan of fellow travelers just to be safe. The weather in these mountain heights was unpredictable. The route was steep and harsh. There was just it, it was a tough journey. Plus, they had to get to Antioch before Sabbath, and the most they could travel in those days on foot, and especially in mountainous conditions, was like 15 to 20 miles. It's 100 miles. So they really have to book it. They really have to exert energy. So this was an arduous journey by any measure, by any physical measure. Even for us today, this was a physical arduous journey, an action of intense dedication to both mission and Messiah. Paul's really showing his dedication here is what I'm trying to get at. But the geography wasn't the only barrier that they would encounter. Some 15 years earlier, Paul himself had been an antagonist of the church, right? Back when he was Saul. And as he was antagonizing the church, what, what happened to the church? What did the church do? Did they stick around Jerusalem and, and toughen up? Or what did they do? They scattered. Bill, you're on your game today. Nice job. They scattered. Yeah, it's called the dispersion, the diaspora. The, the, the church scattered all over the Roman Empire. So they went down into northern Africa They went to all the towns and and cities around the Holy Land. They went to the islands in the Mediterranean. They went up into Asia Minor, which we would call Turkey now. They went all over the place because of Paul. But one place they hadn't hadn't gotten as far as Pisidian Antioch. 
That was further far, further west and north than the gospel had ever been. Paul and Barnabas were therefore marching towards an entirely unpredictable situation, both socially and spiritually. They couldn't be sure of what was going to happen. The people of this area, Phrygia, Phrygians were almost synonymous with slaves because they had this reputation of being dim-witted physical laborers. That's all they were good for is manual labor. And they were fighters. And so Rome conquered them and made them slaves in abundance. They had only been conquered by Rome a generation earlier, and their city, Pisidian Antioch, was a major center for what we call the emperor cult, worship of Caesar Augustus, of worship of Rome, basically. Their city, Pisidian Antioch, had this huge tower of Augustus right in the center square. And so you couldn't escape the worship of the Roman kings. That means that everyone in the city that Paul was heading towards either had A, this huge hateful chip on their shoulder against anyone who, any outsider who would seek to tell them what to do or think, which is what Rome had just done to them. And now Paul's coming in and about to do a very similar thing. Or B, they would have no patience for any message that would undermine Caesar, Rome, who they worship as a god. So I, I hope we can see this is a volatile, potentially a volatile situation that Paul and Barnabas are heading into. I think it's safe to say it's about a 50-50 chance. And really for the rest of Acts, you'll see it's always a 50-50 chance, even in places that are more familiar with the gospel. It's about a 50-50 chance that they will either be celebrated and welcomed or flogged, beaten, publicly executed. Could go either way. You're never really sure. Sometimes it's tough to be a pioneer. It just is. So let's read further and see what happens. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. We'll pause there. There may not have been any Christians out this way yet, but there were definitely a large Jewish population Obviously, there was a synagogue. This passage gives us a really fascinating look at synagogue procedure, um, which I won't go into, but I will say that there were readings from the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, and there were readings from the prophets, which is everything else we call the, the Old Testament. So that's what their service looked like. They did that reading, they did the second reading, they prayed, and then somebody stood up and, and spoke about one of those readings, somebody with authority. So it actually kind of looks a lot like our church, right? Very similar. But then an interesting action happens. And remember, we're talking about actions that happen. Paul and Barnabas are asked by the synagogue leaders to essentially give the sermon, which is strange because they are strangers. Nobody knows who they are. Maybe that's why they were asked, because maybe they carried themselves as people who are very knowledgeable. Maybe they had done some speaking and spreading the word earlier. But probably, most likely, the reason that they are asked is because at the start of the chapter, chapter 13, when they're in Cyprus, they are in the courts of Sergius Paulus, right? Sergius Paulus, as it happens, is a member of one of the wealthiest, most prominent families of, you guessed it, Pisidian Antioch. That's the city he was from. So he probably recommended to Paul, hey, why don't you go to my hometown? I'll write you this commendation so that you'll have safe passage. You'll have my guarantee that you'll be accepted and welcomed. If that's the case, Follow these actions and, and see the divine providence that happens here. So first, Paul meets Paulus. Elymas tries to screw everything up. Paul, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, stops Elymas from screwing everything up. 
Paulus is thus convinced to believe in Jesus. Paulus commends Paul to the Galatians. The Galatians accept Paulus's recommendation of Paul. Paul speaks to the Galatians about Jesus. And without giving too much away about next week's reactions, let's just say it works out pretty good. So that's a long chain of events that only happen because God's guiding the whole thing. It's the reason we have the book of Galatians. Because Paul met with one guy in one court, and that led to belief. And now here he is in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, and he's welcomed and accepted to the point where they're actually saying, hey, brother, come up and say some stuff. We want to hear what you have to say. Probably under the recommendation of Sergius Paulus. So that's, I, I just find it interesting how historical events connect like that. And it all goes back to one act of faithfulness to now an entire region. Oh, spoiler alert. People of an entire region begin to be faithful believers. And so, back in verse 15, the Galatians asked Paul if he has a word to share. And boy, howdy, does he ever have a word to share, let me tell you. So let's look at the content of his sermon to the Galatians. We'll look at the intro first, 16 to 20. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, I don't know what this, the hand motion was, probably something like this, which, let's see if it works. People, it worked, you're all looking at me. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. I'll pause there. Verse 16 contains an enormous bombshell, but I'm going to save it for next week. We're not going to talk about it now. You could probably guess what it is, but I'm not going to talk about it till next week when we talk about reactions. Instead... Let's look at the content of his intro here. It begins with a very basic outline of Israel's history from Egypt to Canaan. It's like if I went to Ontario and was asked to give an up, if, if say, my father-in-law said, hey, how's life in Clyde going? And I went, well, as you know, Canada as a nation was founded in 1867, and there's French and English, and they came together to make this multilingual, and then the railroad was built, and settlers went to Alberta, and I give this whole long, and I talk about oil, and I talk about the mountains, and I talk about Ukrainian settlers, and I just go on and on, and really he's just wondering how much snow we got that winter. That's all, and here I am talking about Boyan as Alberta's first Romanian settlement, and did you know? But that's the vibe that Paul went for. His sermon began with with a common, well-known history of Israel that everyone, even the Gentiles in the room, would have been familiar with. He starts from the beginning. In, In fact, they probably just read a portion of at least one of the stories that he talks about. Remember I said that's the order of the service? They probably had done a reading on something to do with Egypt or Canaan. And so that's where he that's where he his mind goes to. So everyone in the room is probably thinking to Paul, what's the point in bringing this up? Heck, you're probably thinking, Chris, what's the point in bringing this up? Well, I'll get there. Just patience. Let's let's keep reading verses 20 to 22. After this time God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And we'll pause there. Have you ever wondered why First and Second Samuel is called First and Second Samuel and not First and Second David? Because they're all about David. And Dave, when we think of enormous figures in the Bible, like... There's Abraham, there's Noah, 
there's David. David's definitely one of the top five. And in fact, probably top two. It's probably Abraham and David. Maybe Elijah. Uh, I'm listening to this a few days later. Somehow I forgot about Moses. My apologies to Moses. I don't know. Top three. Top five. I don't know. He's in there. He's a big name. Samuel, we don't really think of like that. And so it may be strange to our ears for a whole couple of books to be named after him. So why is that? It's because Samuel marks an enormous transition for Israel. Samuel is the transition from judges. Judges were like these freelance warrior heroes who God's enemies would control Israel. The people would finally remember God and cry out to him. And God would send a judge to defeat these enemies and they'd turn back to God. That's the job of the judges. But Samuel also marks the transition into the time of the kings. Where now it it wasn't these freelance heroes. It was this lineage, this established family who would rule over Israel. And it was Samuel who was the one who ushered that in. So Samuel is the transition figure between those, those two types of leaders. And the first king that Samuel ushered in was Saul. Saul gets mentioned here. And I think it's funny that Paul mentions Saul because he totally only does it because that's his namesake. He, like Saul, was named Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. There's no reason to bring up Saul. Saul's a nobody. He was a loser. He was a failure. There's no reason for Paul to bring up Saul other than to say, by the way, that's my guy. I'm that guy. Um, The real star of the show isn't Saul, though. It's not Saul the Benjamite. It's David the Judean, the man after God's own heart. And David figures prominently into the rest of Paul's sermon. Up until this point, there's nothing the least bit controversial about Paul's little history lesson. Everyone in the room is sitting there with their kind of with their chins on their fists going, yeah, yeah, we know. What's your point? This is not controversial. It's very familiar, very bland. And that's when Paul throws a curveball. Let's read verses 23 to 37. From this man's descendants, that's David, God had brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So there's the bombshell. Once, the, once, Saul, or, sorry, once Paul mentions David, every heart in the room is thinking, Oh, David, when is the son of David going to come and rescue us? As soon as you mention David to Jews in this time period, in fact, if you mention David to Jews today, that's what they're thinking. When will the Messiah come? When will the Savior, the Redeemer come and redeem his people? And Paul drops this bombshell. He mentions David, gets their hearts thinking about it, and then says, oh, by the way, the Savior, he's here. He's alive. He's active. He is doing stuff. He's here. Let's keep reading. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that, were, that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. 
For, that, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And we'll pause there. Um, the Messiah is no longer awaited. He is active. He is alive. He is Jesus of Nazareth, David's descendant, and he is the long-awaited Savior. Paul argues this first by looking at John the Baptist, uh, John's words of preparation and humility in verses 24 to 25. But then he make, Paul makes a good decision. So he, he begins with, here's some really familiar history to butter you up. Here's the bombshell. Jesus is the Messiah. But before going too far down that path, he, he makes a good decision. He stops. He reminds everyone in the room that they are the inheritors of this salvation, that this gift is for them. It's not an abstract concept. Jesus came for them. He says in verse 26, sorry, let me find it. He says in verse 26, Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. Before he goes too far, before he starts people thinking this guy's crazy, he reminds them that this is for you, which is actually what I'm doing right now too. This is for you. This is not some speech that was delivered 2,000 years ago. It's not some dusty historical artifact. This is for you. You. From there, once he butters them up, once I've buttered you up, Paul lays out the kerygma. And we talked about the kerygma a year ago, actually, so I don't blame you if you forget what the kerygma is. Does anybody remember what the kerygma is? It's a Greek word. Anybody remember what that word means? Just for bonus points. If you don't, that's fine. Yeah, Bill, today's your day to shine. Come on, Bill. You got it? No, he doesn't have it. Kerygma is a Greek word. It just means message. So it's the common message of the gospel utilized by every proclaimer of Jesus, including Peter, Stephen, Philip, and now Paul in the book of Acts. They all have the same root message. All the basics are the same, and they're all here in verses 27 to 31. Again, we looked at this way back when we were studying Acts 2, Peter's sermon in Acts 2. That was, I looked it up, February 26, 2017, so almost a full year ago. So I don't blame you for forgetting, but the kerygma message proclaimed by Paul which he probably perfected at the feet of Peter and the other apostles, involved the following. This is the kerygma. Number one, an historical proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus set forth as the fulfillment of prophecy and involving humanity's responsibility. That's the first feature of the core message that they brought wherever they went to tell people about Jesus. The first thing, Jesus lived, died, was exalted. There are prophecies about this that are fulfilled and humans are responsible. In all these sermons, that's true. Number two, a theological evaluation of the person of Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Number three, a summons. So what are you going to do about it? How are you going to react? A summons to believe and receive the forgiveness of sin. I didn't make that up. Robert H. Bounce made that up. But he's right. It's in all of these speeches. And it's here. For example, is there human responsibility mentioned? You betcha. Verses 27 to 28. They did not recognize Jesus, yet by condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Humanity, very responsible. You betcha. Is there an examination of his death, resurrection, and exaltation? You betcha. Verses 30 and 31. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by others. We tell you the good news. What what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. So he was here. He died at human hands. He was raised up. It's all there. Is there fulfillment of prophecy? You betcha. 
Verses 33, 34, and 35 are each a prophecy from Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16, respectively. Paul's all over the place in prophecy. He's he's on fire. He's ripping them out of everywhere. Each one of them, each one of the prophecies he mentions has to do with Jesus' superiority over David. They're all connected, which satisfies the second aspect of the kerygma, a theological evaluation of the person of Jesus as both Lord, greater than David, and Christ, Savior. Paul explains his argument in a helpful way in verses 36 and 37. This is Paul's argument. I mean, this is all academic stuff. You, you don't need to care. Who cares? But this is what Paul is saying. This is the root of his message. As great as David was, David died and is rotting in his grave. David has decayed. He is gone. But David anticipated one to come. He spoke, he wrote about, he sang songs about one who would come. And this holy descendant of his would be greater than he himself ever was. And this is David speaking, the greatest king in Israel's history. He's talking about someone will come who is greater than me. So great, in fact, that when they lay his body down, God will not let his body see decay. He will be raised up to life. His descendant would conquer even death and decay. And that great descendant, Paul says, happens to be Jesus. The third aspect of the kerygma is also fulfilled in verses 38 to 41. And it includes a powerful prophecy from Habakkuk. This is where Paul takes everything he said, all the familiar history and all the bombshell revelations about Jesus, and he bundles it all together and he throws it at their collective forehead. Saying, what are you going to do about this? This is what it says, 38 to 41. This is how the sermon ends. This is how my sermon will end. Therefore, my brothers, and I'll add to you, my sisters as well, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And this is from Habakkuk, where he says, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So Paul's saying, take this, chew on it, don't make the same mistake that Habakkuk's talking about. Don't be a fool. If this is true, if you can see God doing something special in this day and age, do something about it. Respond. Or to use the word I'm using today, react in some way. Paul makes it very clear that a reaction is required to all of this. We will discuss the people's reaction next week. But before we go, I want to show you one more thing. It's really the root of this whole passage. It's the thing that I want you to leave this morning chewing on before you go chew on your potluck food. Okay? So I've titled this sermon, Action. And so far, I have intentionally highlighted the actions of Paul, how he overtook Barnabas in seniority, his physical journey, not to mention the social and spiritual journey he undertook, his actions and his choices in the sermon himself. I've looked at all of Paul's actions. Paul is breaking ground and pioneering a new work in the mission of the church. But when we take a step back, and when we really dive into the message that Paul himself preached, we see something else. We see that Paul's not the pioneer. God himself is the pioneer. It's a pioneering God. That, that's why Paul walks his audience through the history of his people, all the boring, yeah, we know this, Paul. What are you talking about? And you know this. And you're probably thinking, why are we going over the history of Israel again? Well, very intentionally, it's to walk the people and walk us through God's actions It's not Paul's actions that are important here. It's God's actions that are important. And and God performs powerful actions of love and guidance towards his people. All from Egypt, through Canaan, through David, 
everything that happens, God is doing for his people. Now, in language arts, you learned what action words are called. Action words are called verbs. There were not enough voices that spoke up for that, you guys. <laughs> action words are called verbs. Well, I made a collection of the verbs used by Paul in his sermon to, to describe the actions of God towards his people, beginning in verse 17. So here's the list. These are all the verbs ascribed to God. First, he chose. He chose their ancestors. Next, he made. In this case, he made the people prosper. Then he led them out of Egypt. He endured their bad behavior. And actually, what I read is a better word, better translation than endured is supported. And that can be supported like a nurse supporting a baby or like a mother supporting her child or like supporting a, like a donkey carrying a load, supporting a heavy load. Because Israel was both of those things. He was their child that they supported and they were a burden because they were a bunch of ignorant, arrogant, know-it-alls. He supported them regardless. Next, the next verb, overthrew their enemies. Then he gave them their land, their new home, gave them judges, and gave them kings. Gave, gave, gave. Then he removed Saul, and this is an act of grace because Saul was a bad king who was not leading Israel towards God's heart. And he replaced them, removed Saul, and, and instead testified about David. Said, this is a good man. This is a good king. You should be like this king after my own heart. Then he brought a savior to Israel as he had promised. Then he sent a message of salvation to us. And then he raised Jesus from the dead. And then we get to verse 32 at this point. Check out this trifecta. He prom- This is just in verse 32. He promised, he fulfilled, and he raised up Jesus. That's just in one verse. Three, three verbs in one verse. A promise, a fulfillment, and a raising up. Twice more after that, God is said to have raised Jesus. He raised Jesus. He raised Jesus. And then in verse 39, the verb justified. He justified us. That's an important word to Paul. He talks about it all the time in his letters. Justified means to be made right, to be made balanced, to be made proper before God. That's the last verb that he mentions. Paul then closes with a warning from Habakkuk, but that warning is really just a summation of everything I've just said. This is what Habakkuk says, that God declares that he is taking action. He's doing stuff. And look at the stuff he's doing. I'm going to do something. I'm going to take action in your days, that, take actions that you would never believe even if someone told you. Now, if somebody told you somebody is going to do all of these things for you in your life, would you believe that? Would you believe that you are chosen, that you are made, that you are led, that you are all of these great things that somebody higher than you, superior to you, will give, give, give to you? In contrast, here's the verbs that Paul declares of humanity in the same sermon. Here's the the verb that people do. They ask for a king, which may seem benign, but it's actually super selfish. They wanted to be like all the other nations. God said, I'll be your king. They said, no, 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 we don't want that. We want a human king. So that asking is selfish. Then they fail to recognize Jesus. That's a pretty condemning verb. And then they condemn Jesus. That's a very condemning verb. And then they execute Jesus. And then they lay Jesus down. Nothing but worse and worse and worse and worse. They ask selfishly. They condemn. They fail to understand. They execute. And finally, they get rid of Jesus altogether. Those are the verbs described of us, you guys, of people in this passage. It's all dark, it's all negative, and it's all true of each one of us. We are all guilty of those verbs. Full stop. 
I'm not going to water that statement down at all. You and me are guilty of all those same things. However, I guess I am going to water it down because, but the actions of God are all acts of love in return. That's how he reacts to our actions. Look at, look at this list. Look at all that he's done. He is the pioneer. He's the one doing all the work. He is the one who is breaking ground. And who is he breaking ground for? He is breaking ground for you and for me. He has broken ground. He is breaking ground. Everything he does for his people, even the Gentile people in Acts 13, as we'll see next week, everything he does for his people, everything he does for us, is done in holiness and in power. And more than anything, it's done because of his unending, unshakable, immeasurable, inconceivable love for his people. Yeah, absolutely. These are all things a father does for his child. Exactly. These are the verbs of God. The verbs of human are, humans are despicable. But the verbs of God demonstrate love, compassion, grace, acceptance. His love compels him to choose us and to lead us and to send us and to raise us and to promise to us and to justify us and more than anything, give, give, give grace and love to us. Us, even us, who had once been marked by action words like failure, condemnation, execution, and selfish desires. He hasn't just broken ground, he has broken us, necessarily so. We needed to be broken and he broke us so that he could save us. Like Barnabas, we must become less and less so that the one who is greater can become greater. Barnabas did that for Saul. We do that for Jesus. Like Paul, we look to history to see our God at work in our lives even today. And like Paul's audience, we had better respond. We had better react in some way or else suffer the consequences. How will they react? Well, that's for next week. How will you react to our God who acts out of love? Well, that can't wait a week. That's for right now. We can and should and must choose to blaze a trail for him and not for ourselves. We can be pioneers of love and step where no one else ever has. Although Acts 13 is a good reminder that wherever we step, we are not alone. He is there breaking that ground ahead of us, even as we break that new ground alongside him. So that is Paul's sermon to the Gentiles. That's All these actions of Paul teach us something. But more than anything, the actions of God himself teach us something. Next week, we'll look at the reactions. We'll see how the people respond. So let's pray, and then let's uh, potluck. Father God, thank you that you do all of these actions for us, all of these actions of love, all these verbs that show a fatherly compassion and fatherly care. We are the recipients of those verbs, and we are unworthy knowing what we know about ourselves and about humanity in general. but. Thank you, Jesus, that you make us worthy. That even though we're unworthy, you you show us love anyway. And I pray that we would react to your actions positively, that we would become pioneers and trailblazers and um, expediters for you, that we would seek out on journeys with you uh, at the helm, that we would make you great, that we would um, that we would serve you well. As a church and as individuals, I pray that we would react well to all your acts of love. Um, pray that you would continue to strip away those things about us that that aren't like you, Jesus, 
and continue to shape us and form us into something that looks more like you. We love you and we pray to you and to you alone now, Jesus. Amen. And since we all know Newton's third law of motion, I mean, this is all academic stuff. You, You don't need to care. Who cares?